Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to iHeartRadio Communities, a public affairs special focusing on the biggest issues impacting you this week. Here's Ryan Gorman. Thanks for joining us here on iHeart Communities. I'm Ryan Gorman, and we've got some great conversations lined up for you. In a moment, we're going to spend some time talking about policing in America, and then we'll do an update on the coronavirus outbreak and the impact reopenings and protests might have had on the spread of COVID-19. To get things started, I'm joined now by former Florida Sheriff Jim Manfrey, who's part of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, a nationwide group made up of police, prosecutors, judges, corrections officers, and other law enforcement officials working to advance justice and public safety solutions. Sheriff, thanks for joining us. About a week ago, the Law Enforcement Action Partnership put out some recommendations to transform policing, and I want to go through some of what you put forward. The document with the recommendations starts out by identifying three issues that have led to mistrust in some communities. First, It talks about police officers who commit serious misconduct rarely being held accountable. Second, it brings up the problem of law enforcement having to deal with things they're just not trained for, like mental health issues, addiction, all of that. And then finally, it mentions systemic racism from the Jim Crow era. Let's start with those three items and the effect they've had across the country, which has led to this moment. Yeah, I mean, each of those uh, are important conversations to have. And the the secret to this moment is actually implementing these ideas that have been around for quite a while on a national basis. Uh, as we know, there's 18,000 law enforcement agencies across 50 states and 2,500 counties, um, a million law enforcement officers, each with different operating procedures. So what LEAP's proposal is an is a, a, a ability to talk on, on a national basis about national standards. And each of the ones that you cited are things that we have been problems for law enforcement since their inception. It's time now to do something on a national basis. Congress and the president need to get get together and uh, come up with legislation that standardizes these uh, processes. Uh, Now, in my opinion, there are two different things. Racism is a societal issue. Uh, We've been dealing with it since the first slaves came here. Those are issues that have to be dealt with but also how that racism seeps into um, the animus of law enforcement officers uh, when they act on their, uh, their law enforcement uh, authority. Those are the challenges, connecting the societal issues with the operational issues uh, when you're a police manager, a sheriff, or a, a police chief. Let me go back to the second issue that was brought up, the problem of law enforcement dealing with things that they're not trained for, mental health issues, addiction, homelessness, things like that. How much has that part of the job changed over the past couple of decades? Well, you know, for those of us who have been around, and uh, I've been in law enforcement for 25 years over a over 40-year period. In the 80s, we decided as a nation that uh, we wanted to depopulate our mental health facilities. And what was supposed to replace that was, some, was community mental health. It never happened. So what happens is law enforcement constantly becomes a default 
agency to deal with these societal issues, whether it's drugs, alcohol, mental health, domestic violence. Law enforcement is called on to be trained in these issues and deal with them under very stressful circumstances. So LEAP's proposal and many a proposal when I was the sheriff, we did this, is diverting mental health issues into um, community mental health, diverting people who have drug and alcohol issues into um, rehabilitation centers. Jails are not uh, the place where you can effectively deal with these issues. They are cells. That's all they are, the jail cells. They're not magic boxes. You don't go in one way and come out better. So these, these other you know, community efforts must be part of the solution. And it will take the pressure off of our law enforcement officers. The other thing we have to do is stop criminalizing these behaviors. To, to, to criminalize someone who has a mental health issue or a drug issue or, a, um, or a, uh, an alcohol issue or someone who has, is having marriage problems and result in arguments in the home is counterproductive. Putting people in jail actually does the opposite. It, it weakens the family and causes additional problems. So when people talk about defunding law enforcement, it's not about defunding law enforcement. Law enforcement provides a vital role of our freedoms and safeties in the community. But diverting some of these, um, these societal issues into more professional areas so you unburden the, the, the patrol officer is vital. Uh, it's, it's, it's something, an idea whose time has come. It's done on a, a regular basis around this country. It needs to be standardized. There needs to be money provided. Uh, both the federal and the states have to establish standards. I'm joined by former Florida Sheriff Jim Manfrey here on iHeartRadio. He's part of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, a nationwide group made up of police, prosecutors, judges, corrections officers, and other law enforcement officials working to advance justice and public safety solutions. The recommendations are broken down into three groups. Some are for Congress, others are for the executive branch, and then there's some for state and local governments. Explain why it's so important that they're specified like that. Well, the, each, of the, each of those levels of government have, uh, some of them are overlapping, some are specific. What you have is you have federal law enforcement officers, you know, the FBI, DEA, ATF, our air marshals, who are governed by federal statutes. Uh, then you have state uh, laws that oversee the certification of law enforcement officers, including state troopers, deputy sheriffs, police officers. And then there are each individual sheriff's office and uh, city or county have their own policies. So that's why they have to be dealt. Some of these have to be dealt with um, on those particular levels because there are statutes and laws that, um, that govern those, those, those issues. So that's why it's broken down. Uh, I know it sounds to the public like it's just you know, minutia, but um, we are a system of laws and we have to work within them. And if we're going to change the system, you have to change the law, laws that govern how uh, law enforcement acts. So one major reform that's being discussed at the federal level right now are the rolling back of no-knock warrants, meaning law enforcement has the ability to just enter a home or business without immediate prior notification, like knocking on a door, ringing a doorbell, and announcing their intent to enter. That was what was used in the Breonna Taylor case. What are some of the issues with these types of warrants that have led them to be part of this reform agenda? Well, it's simply, it's a technique that that has been abused. I mean, that's why we're having this conversation. There have been incidents where, you know, the no-knock warrant was uh, was done, you know, uh, unfortunately in error. 
and people uh, uh, suffered from those. So the problem that you know a, a managers have, and again, there's always they're always compromised. It's not one or the other. Uh, just like chokeholds, um, yeah, chokeholds should absolutely be banned in every situation unless the officer is potentially at risk of, you know, um, some sort of um, serious physical harm. So, yes, we can go so far, but if you're on a street fight and you're alone in the streets and the person has you uh, in a situation where he's grabbing for your gun and the only thing you do is, is grab him by the neck, you know, that's, that should be an exception to these rules. Um, and the same thing with no-knock warrants is that no-knock should be, should, they should not be a regular part of law, how law enforcement effectuates warrants. But there are instances where you have to have no-knock, where you have, you know, you have specific information from either confidential informants or just by your investigation that this person is holed up with guns and, you know, uh, making your presence known would potentially result in harm to that law enforcement officer. So there are, there are, there are middle grounds here that I think both sides can reach that make the process better without, you know, going all the way. Like when you say defund the, defund the police, you know, that is, you know, sounds like a, a radical view to, you know, it sounds like burning down the house because, you know, your plumbing is, is not working. And I think that's where the conversation has to, has to be more measured and reasonable and has to bring in uh, not only community groups who are, who are rightly offended and outraged by um, this consistent abuse of uh, the use of force, but with law enforcement groups like LEAP who understand what the individual officer and manager goes through every day in trying to keep the community safe. And another major change being proposed that we'll likely see bipartisan support is the creation of a national police misconduct registry. Basically, if a member of law enforcement is accused of misconduct, that information will be available to departments and agencies nationwide in case that officer decides to try to get hired somewhere else. Is that a measure that makes sense to your organization? Yeah, I think it's critical. You know, this is our Achilles heel in law enforcement. In every other aspect of of life, you know, accountability is the key to the success of that organization. You know, uh, if you walk into pub- Publix and the person at the registry is is abusing, you know, customers, that person gets disciplined and you know and terminated if a behavior doesn't inc- improve. It should be no different in law enforcement agencies. And this is where I do fault law enforcement. I have tremendous respect for people on the job. It's a difficult, stressful, dangerous job that they do on a daily basis. Uh, but there, the, this blue, thin blue line, this, this resistance to accountability is, is really has um, threatened um, the reputation of law enforcement officers everywhere. And it's, it just is incomprehensible how much unions, who I faced unions in uh, all my eight years, and I also was a, uh, I worked for a city and I did all of the discipline, unions will fight tooth and nail to keep that um, incompetent, ineffective, dangerous employee on the job, which, by the, fa- by the way, not only affects the public, it also affects other law enforcement officers who have to work with that person. Uh, and also this pressure that law enforcement has to turn a blind eye to bad behavior um, because you're a snitch if you do that causes immeasurable harm 
to law enforcement officers uh, who have to work with these people. That's the culture that needs to be changed. So this database is just one part of one leg of what has to happen to bring more accountability uh, to, uh, to uh, you know, incompetent law enforcement. And in my experience, 99% of the law enforcement officers I've worked with as, as an investigator, prosecutor, or uh, as sheriff are self-motivated to do a good job. It's that 1% who spend, you spend 90% of your time trying to get them to act um, appropriately. Uh, and in the meantime, you have union contracts and unions fighting you tooth and nail to prohibit you and arbitrators and judges um, fighting you to keep those, uh, you know, those, uh, those, uh, those uh, deputies or law enforcement officers uh, employed. Um, that is the root of our problem. We can solve all these other issues, all these other eight things that uh, LEAP has put down, and each one of them is important in its own right. But until we solve that culture and um, make res- most responsible the manager, the police chief, the, the sheriff, the mayor, the elected officials for holding their office accountable, um, and also through a database making sure that other departments are aware of uh, you know, uh, law enforcement officers who have misconduct issues. Uh, and we've saw, we saw this with, with uh, George Floyd, in that this person, uh, Sheldon, had 18 complaints filed at, uh, against him. Um, you know, it's, it's the basic restructure out rule. You know, the first time pe- someone does something wrong, you do progressive discipline, you try to retrain them. Um, the second time, you, you suspend or uh, make it very clear to them what, you know, what the next um, violation will bring. The third time they're out. Um, you cannot spend an enormous amount of time on these ineffective people, and they are everywhere um, in every organization or whatever uh, profession. But law enforcement just has such a resistance to this basic um, responsibility of management. Former Florida Sheriff Jim Manfrey, who's part of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, a nationwide group made up of police, prosecutors, judges, corrections officers, and other law enforcement officials working to advance justice and public safety solutions. You can find out more at lawenforcementactionpartnership.org. Sheriff Manfrey, thank you so much for taking the time to have this discussion with us here on iHeartRadio. We appreciate it. You're very welcome. Anytime. And finally, for an update on the coronavirus pandemic that continues to impact all of us, I'm joined by Florida International University infectious disease specialist, Dr. Aileen Marty. Dr. Marty, thank you for taking the time to get us caught up on where things stand with the outbreak in the U.S. Let me start with the reopenings that have taken place across the country. Is it too soon to tell how much of an impact they've had on the spread of the virus? I think people are mixing up things. Um, it's not just, it's not whether we reopen, it's how we... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Reopen. It's not whether we 
uh, are able to conduct business is how we conduct business. And so, yes, the reopenings have had a negative impact. In other words, they're, in, they're helping to increase the numbers, but not because we're reopening per se, but because way too many people are disregarding the risk from the virus and not necessarily doing all the things that need to be done to minimize the transmission from one person to the next. We see a lot of numbers getting highlighted in the media and online. Positive cases, total tests administered, positivity rates, hospitalizations. What are the metrics that you pay close attention to? Hospitalizations, percent positive, and most important, the reproductive rate. What's the reproductive rate that's going on in a community because that's the number that lets you know whether or not um, we're going to be able to get an outbreak, uh, you know, extinguished. What we're looking for is a reproductive rate to be below one and ideally below 0.7. So if we can get a reproductive number below 0.7, then we're heading in the right direction. Real quick, can you explain for us what the reproductive rate really means? So what, we, what we're looking at is uh, how many other people get infected from each infection, right? So when we started first learning about this virus really in January, because that's when the world became aware of what had been going on for since sometime in November, recognized sometime in December in China, um, those, those raw numbers showed a very high reproductive rate for this virus, which, which, and that number was about 3.9. So that's the reproductive rate for the virus when nothing is done to bring the number down, the reproductive number down, which means that on average, each person was causing an infection in almost four other people, which is a ridiculously high reproductive number. To put that in comparison, influenza, if you don't stop it, only has a reproductive number of about 1.2. So what is the reproductive number made of? It's made up of four things. The duration of the infectious period. So in other words, for how long is somebody shedding enough of this virus to be able to infect somebody else? And that we have nothing we can change because we don't have an antiviral and we don't have a vaccine. The other three things that make up the reproductive number are things we can change. One is the susceptibility of the host, right? So how good is your immune system? How old you are? How healthy you live? Then the other two, the opportunity, which is the contact rate and the transmission probability. So the opportunity is the number of people or surfaces you come in contact with that and I'm talking about contaminated surfaces. And the transmission probability is exactly how close you get to all these other people and how long you're near those other people. Those are the things that we've been working on because those are the tools, those are tools that exist. So what are the tools to decrease those two numbers? Uh, limit your size of mass gatherings, limit the time near a potentially infectious person, your hand hygiene, your, your surrounding hygiene, your proper use of PPE if you're, you know, full PPE, obviously, if you're a healthcare worker, but using uh, face coverings for the rest of the population. The other part of that equation that really helps is to detect the virus by doing proper testing, treating every single person who is ill, 
isolating every single person who is ill and then doing appropriate contact tracing and and quarantining those people who are contacts of the person you detected. Plus, the key thing we have we failed to do early in this United States is to uh, when we do that contact tracing and you and you note that there are people living with a with an infectious individual, you've got to test those people too, not just quarantine them. And that's how other countries early on detected asymptomatic people who had viral loads that were just as high as people who were pre-symptomatic and symptomatic with this virus and therefore potentially able to share the virus with other people. So uh, that's what we need people to do. So can we open the economy? Can we have protests? Can we do all this and also keep these things in mind? And the answer is yes, we can, but we have to actually uh, be conscious of what we're doing. We have to be conscious of how close we get to people for how long we're close to someone else. The, the wearing of the masks has been absolutely hands down shown without a trace of a doubt to decrease transmission between people. Very, very effective. The hand hygiene, super effective. I protect you, you protect me. I'm joined by Florida International University Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Aileen Marty here on iHeartRadio. I want to follow up on something you mentioned a moment ago involving people who are infected with COVID-19 but are asymptomatic. There's been some confusion about whether or not those experiencing no symptoms can infect others. Can you clear that up for us? Well, you're talking about some comments made by Maria Van Kerkhoff, who is a phenomenal uh, researcher, scientist, doctor uh, at uh, WHO, who in response to a very specific question said it's very rare. And what she was referring to is that it's very rare for us to detect an asymptomatic person and then watch them transmit uh, the infection to someone else. And that is very rare because when we detect someone who has a high viral load, we quarantine them. Mm. We, we get them away from other people. Right. So it's, it is very rare in that circumstance to, to get a secondary level of transmission. But there's plenty of uh, epidemiologic evidence that asymptomatic people are part of the equation and there's plenty of data when we do when we check when we do those nasal pharyngeal swabs and we stick that thing up to somebody's nose all the way to the back and get the sample we we run those tests on a machine that uh, slopes slowly up with a fluorescence to show us that the virus is there that slope that we see gives us a clue as to how many viral particles we collected in that swab. So that's all, that, that's an idea of what we call the viral load that, that we're getting from these people. And so since we're able to see very significant viral loads in some people who do not show symptoms, then we know that they have enough virus to share with other people. But another thing that Maria was concerned about, of course, is that there is a whole bunch of people who are either pre-symptomatic. So what's a pre-symptomatic? That's someone with no symptoms today who two days later starts to have symptoms. And those are a big part of the equation. People who 
do not have symptoms at the moment, but they're already shedding plenty of virus. And the fact that a significant portion of people originally described as asymptomatic can, several days down the road, begin to show symptoms. Plus, there's a group of individuals whose symptoms are so mild and so um, forgettable that the individuals themselves don't realize that those symptoms are produced by the SARS-2 virus that causes COVID-19. This notion that being outside, especially if you're wearing a face covering outside and say you're in warmer weather, that that makes it less likely for you to both transmit the virus if you have it or get infected. Is that true? Uh, Well, there's actually several questions in your question there. Um, First of all, let's talk about just being outside, Ryan. So being outside is the ultimate wonderful ventilation. And that's one of the things that we know helps reduce the viral load in the atmosphere. And that's why an enclosed space with poor ventilation is a great place to catch the virus. Whereas, you know, the big outdoors, the, the virus dissipates. Plus, if it's sunny, the UV light helps to uh, deactivate the virus so that it's not infectious very soon. Uh, and so that's helpful too. So yes, being outdoors in general is less risky. But remember, the virus only wants to do one thing. It wants to get from one host to the next. Even when you're outdoors, if you stand close to other people and if you shout and, uh, and, and, and just have close interactions and your hands are not clean and you, you shake their hand and they may be contaminated, not know it, and then you touch your, your mucous membrane, you move your mask up uh, in, in an incorrect way, etc., you could self-contaminate. So getting too close to people is still a risk, even when you're outdoors. So we still want you to maintain the distances. We still want you to properly use your face coverings, even though you're outdoors, but not if you're exercising. So let's say, because then you have a secondary problem of not getting enough air, right? Not breathing right. So uh, at least in our community, I think the mayor has been very bright and very thoughtful in asking people who are running to stay uh, 15 feet apart from other people while they run to make sure, because obviously you're breathing obviously at a higher rate, so you could potentially be spreading virus, and just be further apart from other people, and, 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 and that should help. And we also try and run uh, all in the same direction so that we don't do a lot of cross uh, contamination as we run past each other, even though that's much lower risk because now you're talking seconds near somebody as opposed to 15 minutes or longer. So the same principles apply. You just have to adapt the principles to the circumstance to realize where your risks are greater and where your risks are less and what your best actions are to protect yourself and to protect your community. I'm joined by Florida International University Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Aileen Marty here on iHeartRadio. Final question for you. What are some of the biggest revelations scientists have discovered about the virus in recent weeks? Well, I would say that we have learned oodles and oodles about this virus recently. We're we're much more attuned to exactly how it binds to receptors. We, We understand the immunology a lot better. We understand better why you get blood clots 
these microclots that have been so damaging to so many people. Uh, we understand how obesity impacts on the virus and how it facilitates people having a worse disease. We now understand that there are many, that this is not a very picky virus. It's not very species specific. It, it's perfectly happy uh, infecting other mammals. So that's a, a problem with this, this virus. Uh, we know now that it's not just a severe respiratory infection, but it's a multi-system infection. We know that there's a very significant cardiovascular component, uh, including a vasculitis, which is part of that blood clot stuff that I was talking about. We know that, that people can also present with a variety of symptoms. Some present with gastrointestinal symptoms, some present with neurologic symptoms, renal symptoms, dermatologic symptoms. Um, we, we know that uh, symptomatic people, uh, people who recover from ICU may have symptoms for a long, long time. In fact, some people who were ill in February uh, and recovered are still having some symptoms. It, it, this can be a very devastating disease for people to get over. It's not something you just shake off. Uh, among the things we learned about the immunity, we've learned that it's it's not likely to be long lasting. Most of the other coronaviruses that affect humans, there's six others, uh, do not provide long lasting immunity. So if and when we come up with a vaccine, it's likely we're going to have to have booster shots of it. It's not something. It's not a one and done. Um, we know that having antibodies, neutralizing even neutralizing antibodies, is not proof that you're. You know, it's not guaranteed that you're protected. So the whole idea of the immunity passports is uh, unfortunately flawed and that we therefore we can't count on herd immunity to keep us healthy. We saw the example from Sweden and how high their case fatality rate is now. Um, we're very interested in understanding blood types of people, how uh, blood type A people are more susceptible than blood type O. Uh, and how major histocompatibility antigens may play a key role in how this disease uh, goes on. Um, the only drug that's shown any real value so far for in, in the studies that have been released is remdesivir, but that's an IV drug and not one that we can just give out. It has to be given at the right time to the right patient. I tell you what, that is a lot of new information, some things that I hadn't even heard of before. Florida International University Infectious Disease Specialist, Dr. Aileen Marty. Dr. Marty, Thank you for taking some time to get us all caught up on what's happening with the coronavirus outbreak and the virus itself. We really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you, Ken. And of course, a big thanks to all of you for listening to iHeart Communities. I'm Ryan Gorman on iHeart Radio. Stay safe. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.